What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to Obscura Black Label. This is Obscura, straight with no chaser. John jokingly said, well, what if it's a body? We checked it out. We could only see the head and uh, the left hand sticking out of the mud had rings on it, and apparently she had died screaming. Listener, the audio I'm going to play in part one can never be unheard. It's haunted me. Take that to heart. It's important that you know that it ranks among the most graphic we've played. If you feel even a little nervous, then turn the episode off. Walk away now. The listener sent me a translated news story related to the case. Alongside horrifying footage... Since then, I've been somewhat obsessed with the case itself. Unfortunately, the information available to me is somewhat limited. I can only touch on what I have. Still, I feel a need to cover the case, even if it's only to process these events. Reminder, this is soul-rending stuff. You've been warned. Part 1. Machete San Miguel Chisac, Alta Verapaz, Guatemala, Monday, October 29th, 2018. Rage quenched, Mario Tatacao flees from his home with only the glow of pale moonlight to guide him. He's running as fast as his feet will allow him. The sounds of screams coming from Akal's home were a frequent occurrence in the village of La Isla del Norte. The cries of a woman heard between strikes. It was an accepted fact that Alejandra Ikochub, the hard-working mother of three, was a victim of abuse. Her boyfriend, Mario, the abuser. As Akal flees the scene of his crime, neighbors hear screams coming from his home. They catch glimpses of a shadowy figure disappear into the night. Mario will live as a fugitive for four days. This story reaches a conclusion, but there is no justice in a case like this. Concerned neighbors approach the scene. What they find leaves them slow to react. In a state of shock, someone pulls out their cell phone and begins recording. Mira la mano, aquí está tirado, mira. 
Japón. Ahí lo dijimos nosotros, dejáis. How do you describe a scene this awful? I've watched the footage several times for the episode, but I still struggle. A poorly lit room, blood in a dirt floor. The video footage opens with footage of a hand, apparently hacked from the arm of its previous owner. The hand lays on a dirt floor. The initial screams heard aren't from the victim. No. There are screams of terror coming from a bystander. A man is recording. He moves on from the hand and captures footage of Alejandra. She's laying on her side. The man grabs her by her thigh and rolls her over to her back. The man pans slowly from Alejandra's feet to her head. It's clear she's missing both hands. Defense wounds from the machete attack. Alejandra's second hand, the one not on the dirt floor, can be seen to her side, separated from her wrist. Then there's the most horrific part of the video. There is a gaping hole that separates the top and lower half of her face. The gash starts at the bridge of Alejandra's nose and is deep enough to reach the front center of her head, near the ear. Shock doesn't seem to have taken hold. From translations I found, she's asking for help, but the man callously tells the camera that there is no helping Alejandra. This video lasted a total of three minutes. According to those on the scene, Alejandra lived for more than 30 minutes after the footage was taken. Ah, 
The footage was found on a hidden corner of the web. The footage features comments from forum members that are emblematic of an issue discussed later in the episode. One forum member writes, Oh my god, this is such a beautiful video. I love seeing her being all destroyed. Fucking great. Another writes, Since it hasn't been said yet, I bet she has a splitting headache. Finally, a comment from a member who appears sympathetic, then takes a disgusting turn. Just a simple touch and a soothing voice. It seems like that's the bare minimum that one human can give another in their last moments. That may be the best thing I draw from my prurient interest in death. I'll be the one who puts the phone down and comforts a dying person. Afterwards, I would kick myself for not taking a video and feeling up her tits. It's worth noting that these forum members often have their real-life photos as their forum avatars, not even hiding their identity. To twist the knife in an already heartbreaking story, Guatemalan news sites report that Alejandra's three children will go to an orphanage. Like many victims of abuse, it seems that Alejandra was caught in a cycle of violence. Alejandra's mother was abused by her father. The abuse became so severe that her mother fled with the five children. When Mario Acau was finally captured, he had to be saved by local police, because upon recognizing him, the members of the village Acau was using as a hideout began attacking him. Mario told the courts that Alejandra wasn't faithful. Upon seeing her exit another man's truck, Akal began drinking. In a rage, he took up his machete. On November 21, 2018, the UN announced a plan to counter gender violence in Guatemala. According to the UN's collected data, there are 27 registered cases of violence against women daily, including sexual, political, economic, or labor violence. That means that a woman suffers from violence at least once every hour in Guatemala. Telesor reported, Just weeks ago, Guatemala was shocked by the femicide of Alejandra Ikuchub, a 32-year-old woman. Her partner, Mario Tatacao, had been accused of domestic violence previously, even attacking his former wife with a machete. Maybe there's some comfort knowing that Alejandra's death helped spark a debate that eventually launched an effort to reduce violence against women. Maybe there's comfort knowing that the footage provided the awareness that provided the spark for this discussion. I'm not sure. Mario Tatakao was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. Recently, footage circulated of the killer celebrating his birthday in prison. He can be seen dancing to the cheers and applause of his peers. Part 2 Epidemic Listener, Part 2 of this episode will touch on a few topics, including internet radicalization and the rise of groups such as 8chan, 4chan, and QAnon. What it won't do is cover politics or gun control, as those subjects are not in the control of anyone except for lawmakers. However, there will be an emphasis on lack of control, or rather the control we all passively give up when we choose to enter a public space. Whether that space is a mall, a movie theater, a mosque, a nightclub, or even an elementary school. Sometimes I feel nowhere is safe anymore. 
What we want to discuss today is not the who or the why, but the how and the where. How are these mass shooters being created, and where are they obtaining such radicalized ideologies? We will not be covering the shooters themselves in extensive detail. I have no interest in painting these losers as anti-heroes. In fact, I don't have interest in even giving their names. If you want that material, it's out there. You won't get it from me. The Internet Pathway There are different ways to become radicalized. A study performed by the National Institute of Justice states that an entry into radicalization can come from the internet, from friends or family, or through movements that are promoting extremist ideas. Other sources list publications and social groups as other possible ways. Realistically, there are countless ways someone can be introduced to radical ideas, but this episode will focus on the internet pathway, and more specifically, 8chan which has become the recent message board of choice for mass shooters. 8chan is an image board with user-created message boards on subjects as innocuous as dog training, and as controversial as celebrating and cheering on mass shooters and white nationalists, as well as other extreme alt-right groups. 8chan has been linked to three mass shooters through the first eight months of 2019, the most recent being the August El Paso shooter in Texas the April synagogue shooting in San Diego, and the March Christchurch shooting in New Zealand. All three shooters in these cases uploaded manifestos of sorts, and in the case of the Christchurch shooter, he also streamed video from his helmet cam as he systematically executed his innocent targets, often shooting them even after they were clearly dead. His intention was to create a visual impact in support of his cause which focused on white nationalism and pure races. 8chan was created in 2014 by Frederick Brennan when a favorite message board of his was deleted after a controversy known as Gamergate. It was originally supposed to be called the Infinity Channel, with the vertical number 8 representing the horizontal shape of the infinity sign. Its original purpose was supposed to be a free speech friendly alternative. However, it quickly became known as 8chan by its users. Brennan took on partners a father and son duo named Jim and Ron Watkins. Ironically, Brennan left 8chan in 2016, calling for the board's mass demise after escalation of mass shooter events that were either linked to or made reference to the channel. According to the FBI, individuals can become radicalized for a myriad of reasons, but often it happens when someone is trying to fill a deep personal need. Extremists are adept at finding recruits by tapping into their insecurities. They prey on the disenfranchised by making them feel valued or appreciated. They look for people with traumatic pasts and personal problems and know that by the time someone has reached their content, whether that is a YouTube video, Facebook page, or an 8chan message board, they are already in the pursuit of a group or community that will accept them even praise and reward them as they pass each test and become more and more radicalized for the cause. Ideal recruits suffer from social alienation and anxiety and need a place or a person or a cause to direct their rage toward. The FBI warns that extremists do not have the answers to anyone's problems, needs, or issues. They only want to use or control people, that they use many different reasons to convince people to join them. One of their main tactics is to try to get someone to become angry or upset about a certain problem in the world. 
and to believe that hurting other people or destroying certain groups or the government is the only solution. Other times, a person feels mistreated and believes there is injustice in the world, or that society has left them behind. Radicalization can happen due to emotional vulnerability, dissatisfaction with current political activity, identification with victims, believe that the use of violence is not immoral, and a sense of reward and social ties into a radical group. This radicalized group provides a community of like-minded people. The group also gives explanations for why they were left behind by society. They promote a victim mentality and rationalize violence as justifiably fighting back. According to a study by the National Institute of Justice, where they studied 900 terrorists and 600 nonviolent extremists, 60% became radicalized after they had a grievance against the government or in a reaction to a political event. The internet played at least some role in individuals' radicalization at around 50%. Being in a group led by the radicalization of 42% of people, the NYPD Intelligence Unit believes that the internet is the driver and enabler for the process of radicalization. According to a study by Daniel Kohler, the internet provides a cheap and efficient way to communicate, network, and organize meetings or make other arrangements. Gone are the days of donning a sheet and attending a cross-burning under the cover of darkness. Now you can share like-minded ideologies, no matter how awful they are, and government disdain from the comfort of your own Wi-Fi connection. The internet provides a perceived constraint-free space and anonymity. This provokes or motivates individuals to speak or act out more radical online as they would normally do offline. The constraint-free space leads people to think they have the freedom to say or suggest whatever they want. You can't do that offline without the possibility of being an outcast. A past extremist told Kohler that 70-80% of networking is done online. People can also shop around to find groups who have similar ideologies. The plurality of thoughts and theories, all with the same goal and related to each other, invigorates the movement. And it can invigorate someone because they feel they can participate. Joining a group can help someone feel as if they are participating something they may not be able to do offline. It can also seem like high-ranking members are approachable. There is a competition between radicals to seem as if they are the most loyal of the group. There is a need to be the most radical. According to Becca Lewis from Data and Society, radicals will often start with humor to make extremist ideas seem as a joke, coding their extreme ideologies in many layers of irony. It gives far-right extremists plausible deniability about their extremist beliefs. The recruitment steps for social media platforms is to monitor discussions, then step in at the right time by replying to their targets. Their target is someone who was specifically chosen based on their profile information. They give the target a little bit of information in order to lure them into the discussion. The discussion will be based on the target's preferences which they will have found out by looking at the target's profile. A term called alternative influence network is another way radicalization can happen. Alternative influence network is basically the connection between viewers and content creators. Viewers are more likely to look up fringe content or have YouTube suggest fringe content if a fringe figure is a guest on a show. If the host doesn't push back or ask questions of their fringe figure guest, then viewers see that as an implicit endorsement. This can lead to viewers looking up the fringe guest's content, which can then lead to radicalization. Many of you have heard of Pizzagate, I'm sure. 
It's based on the conspiracy theory that there is a deep state group of pedophiles that operate out of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. Supposedly, it's run by elite Democrats such as John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. There are conspiracy theory videos that purport that the restaurant doubles as a human trafficking and child sex ring. Edgar Welch from North Carolina was a big fan of conspiracy theories. He spent days reading about and watching videos on a secret satanic child abuse sex ring in the basement of Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C. Conspiracy theorist Alex Jones posted a video saying, quote, Someone's got to do something about this. Welch took that as a sign that he should be that someone. He drove four and a half hours from North Carolina to Washington, D.C. to be that someone. He was going to free the children and expose the Democrats in the process. He would be a hero for the cause. Not only would the public praise him, but he would also garner the attention and praise from the likes of Alex Jones. When Welch arrived with his AR-15, which has become the gun of choice for mass shooters, he first fired a warning shot. Then he began moving furniture and searching for the children who were being trafficked, but found nothing. He was quickly arrested without injury. To date, Comet Ping Pong employees receive death threats, online harassment, and continue to field threatening phone calls because of the Pizzagate theories. The FBI defines domestic terrorism as perpetrated by individuals and or groups inspired by or associated with primarily U.S.-based movements that espouse extremist ideologies of political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. International terrorism is defined as perpetrated by individuals and or groups inspired by or associated with designated foreign terrorist organizations or nations. If you look at the above definition of extremism, you can see that extremism and domestic terrorism are almost identical, but radicalization, until it turns violent, is not the same as terrorism. According to the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, Domestic extremists killed at least 50 people in 2018. They killed 37 in 2017, 72 in 2016, and 70 in 2015. 2018 was the fourth deadliest year for domestic extremist-related deaths since 1970. White supremacy was responsible for 78% of the 2018 extremist killings. 16% were anti-government extremists, 4% were incel extremists, and 2% were domestic Islamist extremists. To become part of the statistic, the killing must have positive evidence connecting the murderer to an extremist group or movement. 2002, the NYPD started the first cyber intelligence unit after learning that terrorist organizations were using the internet to spread their messages. In 2007, the unit realized that members of a New York-based Islamist organization known as the Islamic Thinkers Society created their own splinter group, Revolution Muslim. The members created RM because they felt ITS wasn't extreme or active enough. Revolution Muslim was a web and New York-based radical Islamist organization and movement that operated from December 2007 to May 2011. According to one of the co-founders, the Revolution Muslim blog had 1,500 hits per day. Their YouTube channel had 1,000 subscribers. Their goal was to establish Islamic law in the United States, destroy Israel, and take Al-Qaeda's message to the masses. RM was one of the most publicly known radical groups. Many members of RM were young, disaffected Muslims experimenting with the idea of violent jihad. 
People would start with RM, then join other groups. Because the founders didn't glorify terrorism, their movement wasn't shut down as quickly as others. RM freely spread their message more than any other group. RM laid the foundation for jihadist organizing in the United States that ISIS would later copy. In total, eight homegrown terrorist plots in the United States had ties to Revolution Muslim. Worldwide, there were at least 15 plots, arrests, or military actions tied to members of RM. The plots included the plot to kill a Swedish cartoonist in March 2010, a plot to bomb the London Stock Exchange in December 2010, and a plot to bomb New York City in November 2011. Listener, this year, we're all looking forward to a fresh start. Great way to start fresh is with some self-care and fresh scents from Native. Native aluminum-free deodorant is a great addition to your 2021 routine. Native cares about what you put on your armpits. That's why their deodorant's ingredients list includes things you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. Another plus? None of their products are tested on animals, and almost everything is vegan. Switching to Native from an antiperspirant doesn't mean you'll have to worry about that midday BO either. Native will have you walking around smelling like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, or maybe even lavender and rose. You can choose from over 10 cents, including their classics and rotating seasonals, so you're guaranteed to find one you love. Native Deodorant has over 16,000 five-star reviews and has been featured in the Today Show for a reason. It works. Make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com obscura or use promo code Obscura at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash Obscura, or use promo code Obscura at checkout for 20% off your first order. Listener, one of my favorite guilty pleasures is watching bad and cheesy horror movies. There's just something fun about picking them apart. But you know what I feel exactly zero guilt about? How much I love playing Best Fiends. Our friends over at Best Fiends have been generous enough to support our show on and off for some time now. And I have to say, the game is addictive in the best way. It's a great way to de-stress between recording sessions. I really like the presentation and cartoony characters. My girlfriend has a great time playing it too. Best Fiends is boredom's worst nightmare. With Best Fiends... There's something new today, and tomorrow, and every day after that. Literally thousands of levels to play, and counting, plus tons of cute characters to collect. So if you never get tired of solving puzzles, good news. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. Just don't blame me if you become slightly obsessed. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Pulse. One such believer was the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooter. The Pulse shooter was a 29-year-old U.S.-born citizen from Queens. Again, we won't be giving his name. He had previously been investigated by the FBI in 2013. After a co-worker told investigators, he talked about having ties to Al-Qaeda. After a 10-month investigation, however... The matter was closed and no charges were filed against him. 
In 2014, he was again questioned after the FBI received a credible tip that he was watching jihadist videos. But again, this investigation led nowhere and charges were never filed. Prior to the attack on Pulse, the shooter had identified a different target located near an entertainment complex, but decided to change locations when he realized it had too much security. In an effort to find a new location, the shooter googled Orlando nightclubs and found Pulse. The shooter's wife alleged that he probably didn't know it was a gay club, that it was just a coincidence. However, one has to assume that Google search would have identified the demographic, but we'll never actually know. In the early hours of June 12, 2016, Pulse was hosting Latin Night with more than 300 people in attendance. Just after 2 a.m., amid the music, the first shots were fired. Adam Gruler, an off-duty police officer working security at the club, exchanged gunfire with the assailant. He had to quickly retreat when he realized that the shooter had more firepower than he did. Gruler called for backup at 2.02 a.m. Police officers showed up within two minutes. Additional supporting agencies arrived minutes later at 2.08 a.m. Upon arrival, SWAT entered through a broken window and immediately exchanged gunfire with the shooter. At this point, only 10 minutes had passed since the first shots rang out. The shooter, who was forced to retreat, began taking hostages into the bathroom located in the back of the club. Unfortunately, because the situation was still active, many of the wounded would have to remain bleeding and dying on the floor. Are you hurt? Watch. Each person the police encounters has to be treated as a possible shooter. In a high-pressure situation such as this, each person must be vetted quickly as either a victim or an assailant. Police direct each person to identify themselves or they will be shot. Life and death assessments need to be made in seconds. This is where years of risk assessment training comes into play. One wrong decision could have deadly consequences. The shooter wants the negotiator to know the impetus for his shooting in revenge due to the U.S. bombing campaigns on ISIS targets in the Middle East, as well as other U.S. anti-terror policies overseas. The negotiator must rely on his training to quickly establish a bond and make sure he offer validation to the shooter. He doesn't want to agitate him, as that could have deadly consequences for the hostages. 
Their lives are hanging in the balance of a conversation that could easily go wrong or be misinterpreted. At 2.35 a.m., the shooter calls 911 and professes his allegiance to ISIS. The call lasts for just 50 seconds. Over the next hour, negotiators talk to the shooter three more times in hopes of ending the standoff without any more casualties. Well, you need to know that they need to stop bombing off Syria and Iraq. The U.S. is collaborating with Russia, and they're killing innocent women and children, okay? I hear what you're saying. My homeboy, Tamerlan Sarnayev, did his thing on the Boston Marathon. My homeboy, Munir Abu Salha, did his thing, okay? So now, it's my turn, okay? Negotiators do their best to distract the shooter and get him to share a list of demands. They are specially trained to build rapport quickly with the assailant in an effort to de-escalate the situation and determine if the hostages are still alive. Each word is critical and must be chosen carefully. Hostage negotiators rely on art as much as science in these highly charged situations. The negotiator does his best to determine if the shooter is alone or if there is a second shooter inside the facility. However, the shooter quickly seems to catch on to the ploy. During negotiations, the shooter tells police he put a bomb in his car in the parking lot, that he was also wearing an explosive suicide vest. While continuing to hold people hostage, the shooter conducts a series of internet searches for news on the attacks. He wants to make sure the media are informed and his message was getting delivered. He also continually texts with his wife. At 4.21 a.m., an air conditioner unit from an exterior wall of a dressing room is removed. A few of the hostages are able to escape through this open space. The escapees tell police that the shooter stated he had four more suicide vests with him, which he planned to place on the remaining hostages within the next 15 minutes. With time of the essence, SWAT and the hazardous device team set up quick-timed explosives to breach the exterior wall. At 5.02 a.m., the explosives detonate. The team uses an armored vehicle to smash through the wall allowing the remaining hostages to flee through the new opening. Law enforcement again engage in a short gun battle with the shooter, killing him at 5.15 a.m. Later investigators determined that there were no explosive devices or bombs, In total, 49 innocent people lost their lives that night. Another 53 were wounded. Authorities later learned that there was no proof the shooter was told by ISIS to perform a terrorist attack. Media have speculated that the attack was originally thought to be an attack on the LGBTQ plus community. And maybe it was. However, after an in-depth investigation and trial of the shooter's wife, it was found that there was no direct evidence supporting this theory. The shooter's widow went on trial in March of 2018. She was acquitted of providing material support to a foreign terrorist organization and of obstruction of justice in connection with her husband's 2016 shooting rampage. Police believe the Orlando shooter was radicalized via an internet pathway. He wasn't the first shooter to become radicalized online, and he also won't be the last. Christchurch On March 15, 2019, another shooter, this time from Christchurch, New Zealand, uploaded his manifesto to the 8chan image board, 
before carrying out New Zealand's worst mass shooting in its history. It was against an Islamic mosque. The document entitled The Great Replacement was 74 pages long and started off with an inspirational image and message about heading toward a new society. It was also accompanied by a poem about refusing to go gently into the night. I'm sure you've heard it. The manifesto began by discussing white genocide. The writer believed that immigrants are pouring into New Zealand and changing the country's demographic. He believed the problem lies in birth rates and how whites need to maintain the majority of the population, or the world will quote, spiral and decay. If white people don't procreate, immigrants will racially and culturally replace white people, who are quote, the superior race. The writer describes himself as an ordinary white 28-year-old man. He explains he was born in Australia and came from a low-income working-class family. He was never really interested in education, but he did work and invested in BitConnect. BitConnect was an open-source cryptocurrency where you can invest your money and receive daily interest payments. However, it was deemed a Ponzi scheme and shut down in January of 2018. While it lasted, the writer used the money to travel around the world and he didn't like what he was seeing. Immigrants, he said, were taking over entire European nations. Although he was just a, quote, regular white man from a regular family, he knew he had to take a stand and ensure the future for his people. The purpose for his attack on the Christchurch Mosque was to teach the, quote, invaders that our lands will never be their lands. He intended to right the wrongs of the past against his people for terrorist attacks, enslavement by Islamic slavers, and deaths caused by foreign invaders. He also believed his attack would reduce immigration by intimidation and literal removal of Muslims. By the indiscriminate killing of Muslims, he hoped to incite violence and inspire others to engage in similar attacks. He also believed his attack would create fear and conflict the United States regarding gun control issues. He wrote about a time, two years prior to the attack, that dramatically changed his views. In mid-2017, he saw the truth of the West's current situation. He realized that, quote, A violent revolutionary solution is the only possible solution to our current crisis. The first event that changed his point of view was the Stockholm terror attack in April of 2017. It was then he knew he could no longer turn his back on all the terrorist attacks that have occurred throughout his lifetime. He was deeply affected by the murder of Swedish girl Ebba Ackerland. The second event that impacted his beliefs was the 2017 French general election. One of the candidates was a quote, quasi-nationalist, whom he believed would win the election. However, when the quote, international globalist, anti-white ex-banker won the election, this caused him great despair. Seeing the invaders take over French cities and towns was unacceptable. He couldn't understand why the French didn't see they were becoming a minority in their own country. He knew someone had to fix things, and that's when it occurred to him. Why not me? The shooter stated he was not a part of any political group, but did donate to and interact with many white nationalist groups. He wrote that no group ordered the attack, but he did ask the reborn Knights Templar for their blessings in the attack, which they gave to him. He wrote that he chose his victims because they were an obvious, visible, and large group of invaders. He also believed they have high fertility rates and are procreating at a faster rate than whites. He began planning for his attack two years prior, specifically moving to New Zealand to plan and train for the event. 
He chose to use a firearm because it would lead to more media coverage and would have an effect on the United States. By choosing New Zealand, he hoped to convey that nowhere in the world is safe. The shooter's manifesto stated he did not hate Muslims who knew their place and remained in their own country, but he did hate Muslim invaders and especially those who turned their backs on their own countries and cultures. He knew dying was a possibility, yet preferred to survive the attack so he could spread his message via the media and waste the resources of the prison system. He didn't want to harm any police officers in the attack because he believed they were loyal to their people. The only exception would be any police officer with an invader background. Those he was willing to kill. He was looking forward to his trial and intended on pleading not guilty. The shooter researched and developed his ideology on the internet because he believed it was the only place where he could quote, find the truth. He expected to eventually be released from prison and awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his actions and bravery and encouraged others to plan their own attacks by forming alliances with those who shared the same views. He began his attack on March 15, 2019 and live-streamed it with a head-mounted camera. The footage lasted 17 minutes. When he was done, 51 people were killed and 49 injured. The helmet cam video begins with a view of the shooter's front seat where you can see several automatic weapons and shotguns. The shooter is driving to the mosque located in a suburb of Christchurch. He parks in an alleyway grabs a gun from his trunk and heads towards the mosque. Before reaching the entry, he sees people standing by the doorway. He begins firing as he approaches. As people drop and try to crawl away, he continues to shoot them until they stop moving. You can hear moaning and see people running for their lives. Some are still in positions of prayer, no longer able to move or escape. As others run, they are no match for the automatic gunfire. They too fall to the ground. He switches gun magazines and goes back to shoot into a pile of dead bodies. It's imperative no one survives. He doesn't want stories of escape or heroism. In his mind, the only hero here today is him.
After exchanging guns, he heads back towards the mosque, past the entry gates, and this time, heads towards the side parking lot, making sure no one is left alive or attempting to escape. So we won't get the burn today, boys. shooter walks outside the mosque and fires at people running away from the sounds of gunfire. He approaches someone writhing around on the ground, screaming for help. It's a woman. She's rolled into the gutter. As he gets closer, you can hear her repeated cries for help. He mercilessly shoots her twice, the last shot in the head. The shooter then heads for his car and drives away. As he drives away, he shoots through his windshield and through his side window at the people he sees on the streets. His driving becomes erratic as he begins to talk to himself. He chants, to hell with the invaders. He is celebrating, still remembers to use his turn signal, because safety first. Instantly. Leave a bit of attention. 
for ease of access. If you pick ease of access, you can't fuck yourself. Magazine back there, I know for sure, possibly more. Have to run along in the middle of the firefight and pick up the bag that fell out pretty much fucking instantly. There wasn't even time to aim due to so many targets, and there were so many people that the car park was full. So there's no real chance to get through that. can't see in the video is that the shooter leaves the mosque and heads to the Islamic Center, where there is a second shooting. Shortly thereafter, he is arrested without incident. The Prime Minister denounced groups such as 8chan that gives extremists a forum to spread their propaganda of hate. She called the incident an act of extreme and unprecedented violence on one of New Zealand's darkest days. She urged the public to render the shooter nameless and deny him the publicity and notoriety he seeks. New Zealand made it illegal for the press to disseminate the shooter's manifesto and illegal for anyone to own a copy of it. At the time of this recording, the United States has recently had three more mass shootings in a span of two weeks. The shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California, the Walmart shooter in El Paso, and the nightclub in Dayton, Ohio. The El Paso shooter was the third mass shooter to post a manifesto on HN this year. The shooter, a 21-year-old man, drove 600 miles from Dallas to El Paso, specifically so he could shoot the, quote, invaders. In his manifesto, titled The Inconvenient Truth, he specifically praised the Christchurch shooter. He stated the El Paso attack was because of the Hispanic invasion of Texas and how they, the immigrants, are the instigators that prompted the shooting that killed 22 people. Like the Christchurch shooter, he believed immigrants were overtaking the white population, so he was therefore defending his country. He stated the reasons the Europeans were able to wipe out the Native Americans is because they didn't take the European immigrants seriously. He made the correlation that the same type of thing is happening now in the U.S. The shooter made it clear he was against both Republicans and Democrats, However, he believed the Democrats are pandering to the Hispanic population so they can win every election. The shooter believed American corporations are part of the conspiracy, intentionally creating low-paying jobs to entice immigrants to cross the border and then vote Democratic. He believed that different races should be split up into different territories so they can't mix races. 
The shooter also stated that his views predated Trump and that the fight for pure races is just beginning and that he is honored to be part of the fight in reclaiming our country. So tell me, listener, when you enter a shopping mall, a school, or even a movie theater, are you looking for exits? Are you looking for possible escape routes? Are you worried you will encounter a shooter in a place where you should otherwise feel safe? Has the rise of mass shooters caused you to change your ordinary course of life? Is that the answer? To avoid leaving our homes. What if instead we could cut off a pathway to mass shooters? The FBI states that these are planned events and planned events give us an opportunity to intercede. Will cutting off the online gathering places such as 8chan solve this crisis? What would happen if we didn't have platforms like 8chan or 4chan? How can we as a society stop internet radicalization? Should these corporations be as responsible for their content the way magazines and networks can be? For now, I'll leave that to you. But for this narrator, this is one of the more terrifying subjects for me. I look at my grandson, step-grandson, and I worry about putting him into school. I know I shouldn't be, that the odds are astronomical, but I see these videos and I see these shootings in the news every day, and it puts fear into my heart. I don't know what the solution is, but I know what we're doing now isn't working. I know that the ever-growing statistics paint a grim picture, but still, you have to consider, should the government close down pathways to internet radicalization, or is that the suppression of free speech? Again, I'll leave that to you.